Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, May 13th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, the Pennsylvania primary is now just a few days away, and it is turning into a real foot race between three candidates who, as of this morning, are all within the margin of error in the Real Clear average, with the big surprise being a late surge in support for Kathy Barnett, a very Trumpy candidate who Trump himself says cannot win the general election this fall. The race raises all sorts of questions about the future of Donald Trump and the direction of the GOP. And to make it even more interesting, the balance of power in the Senate may be at stake, as the open Senate seat in Pennsylvania is on every Democrat's list as a possible pickup in November. Also this week, the January 6th committee issued subpoenas to five Republican members of Congress, including Kevin McCarthy, who fancies himself the next Speaker of the House. The committee plans to start televised hearings in June, and we'll talk about what to watch for in the run-up to what the Democrats are surely hoping will be a summer blockbuster. And politicians love babies, or at least they used to, because now Joe Biden is getting blamed for a national shortage of infant formula. And it is, unfortunately for him, just the kind of issue that crystallizes a lot of the problems facing the White House right now. Does he deserve this? Is he truly anti-baby? And what can be done about it? Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Phil Wegman, White House correspondent. So, Tom, Kathy Barnett, very interesting candidate, African-American woman, veteran, business executive, self-proclaimed Trumpster. Uh, she's been totally outspent, and yet she's on a tear. What is going on in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so this has turned into just a fascinating situation because you've got, you know, the Trump-endorsed candidate, Mehmet Oz, who, uh, you know, was a shock to a lot of people that Trump endorsed him. He is not well-liked by the conservative base of the party. And then you've got David McCormick, who's sort of the establishment guy, uh, who, but, but also has some Trump supporters and former Trump officials working on his campaign. But voters not really liking either one of those. And, and so out of the blue comes Kathy Barnett, as you mentioned, African-American woman, veteran. And suddenly the, you know, <laughs> the club for growth starts plowing money into her campaign. Joni Ernst is endorsing her, <laughs> you know, in April, it's kind of like, what's going on here exactly? So there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of behind the scenes machinations going on. I think, you know, the club for growth desperately wants to defeat Donald Trump's back candidate. And, and there, it looked like McCormick was sort of fading and they thought they'd jump on the, the Barnett bandwagon. And then you've got Hannity just did a big thing on her last night. Rick Grinnell has been trashing her on, on Twitter, you know, day in and day out about all of these comments that she's made on Twitter, on Facebook that are now coming to light. I mean, she was literally an afterthought just a few weeks ago, she was at about six points and in fifth place in our real clear politics average in the first week of April. And now she's moved into second place. And she's on a tear. I mean, she's like, if you look at that real clear poll, it's really something. Yes. And so um, I think this is a situation where everybody's concerned. <laughs> Trump's concerned. He came out and said, look, she can't win the general election. Don't, you know, I like her. She's fine, but don't vote for her. Um, the establishment folks are concerned that that they're not going to be able to unseat the Trump candidate. So there's a lot going on in Pennsylvania right now. And it's going to be fascinating to see 
whether Kathy Barnett can be stopped. And if so, how that plays out as far as who ends up winning this race. And and of course, I've said this repeatedly, every cycle, there's a there's a Senate seat that Republicans end up shooting themselves in the foot. And the question is, well, who is it going to be this year? And, and um, you know, you think back to Sharon Angle and Christine O'Donnell and Richard Murdoch and Todd Aiken. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, this might be the one. I mean, this might you end up might end up with a candidate here who wins the primary, who is not going to be able to get across the finish line in a general election. We'll have to wait and see. But it is it's a crazy situation right now with with under a week left. So, Carl, is she the rich strike of uh, GOP Senate race? <laughs> Speaking his language, well, derby yeah, she, language. She could be. Um, I was thinking about the all the money that's been spent in that race. Uh, uh, Jess Unruh, Big Daddy Unruh, the famous California Democrat. During Ronald Reagan's time there in Sacramento and before, he used to say, money is the mother's milk of politics. And there's been about $50 million spent in that race, all of it by Dr. Oz or David McCormick or on their behalf. She spent less than $150,000 on the airway. So how is she surging? Well, we've seen this before. That money being spent by Dr. Oz and David McCormick is being spent trashing the other guy. Uh, it's th- These are kamikaze attacks. And so- I think it was Steve Bannon who said, you know, Pennsylvania Republicans started looking around. Well, obviously, I don't want those two guys. Who else is there? Well, there's a African-American woman with a compelling life story, a veteran business owner. Well, that That's my cup of tea. And I I sensed that she was surging before the before the Real Clear Politics poll average showed it because she started getting trashed on Twitter, as Tom alluded to, from every from liberals, conservatives. Everybody started attacking her. I thought, oh, she must be gaining traction. It was part of the dynamic that helped create Donald Trump in 2016 and 2015. A super PAC loyal to Jeb Bush spent like $100 million taking the bark off Marco Rubio, um, Jeb Bush's one-time protege. And Chris Christie went after Marco Rubio. Rubio was sort of the obvious candidate, and he he couldn't get there. And Bush didn't get there either, and neither did Chris Christie. Donald Trump picked up the pieces. And that that dynamic reminds me a little bit what's going on in Pennsylvania now. Except for the fact that, Phil, you know, she is a real Trumpster. Um, she's not sort of running against MAGA. She's embracing MAGA. And she's saying some very interesting stuff, which is that- She's ultra MAGA. MAGA now is bigger than Trump, <laughs> that MAGA basically doesn't need Trump. What do you think? I'm glad you said that, Andy, uh, because going to uh, Cannon's point, um, the reason we know about her is because of the attacks on her. And she hasn't had to spend a lot of her own money. Obviously, the Club for Growth and the Susan B. Anthony list have stepped in to boost her. But the reason she has reached a, a more prominent level is because of all the people who are attacking her. And I think that um, you know these attacks, they get people's attention. And then when people look at her story, they, they see a generally inoffensive person. The thing is, though, um, I think her candidacy illustrates two things. First, it illustrates McConnell's worst nightmare because, you know, like Tom said a moment ago, he didn't want to have a Sharon Angle candidate who messed things up this cycle. He didn't want to have a candidate who wasn't polished, who was a, a, a loose end. But the other thing, the, the larger thing is, yeah, she's ultra MAGA. Perhaps she's bigger than MAGA itself because you're watching all of these populists run around, uh, Grinnell, Trump, and others with their with their hair sort of quietly on fire because they are starting to realize that the base isn't completely beholden to them and that populists can make their own decisions without them. Yeah. Carl, looking towards the general, is Trump right and is McConnell right to be afraid? I mean, she's run before. She got 
murdered, I guess, last time around, right? And she didn't concede that she lost that race, which makes the uh, the Trumpers love her even more. <laughs> she's going to run for president like Stacey Abrams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <right>. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, she's only now getting the kind of inspection that uh, – that the candidates get. She she'd been a you know a talker on the radio, and so she's got and she's got some homophobic comments that they'll bring out, some anti-Muslim comments that they'll bring out, and so you know she's got vulnerabilities. Um, I, I would say this though, I don't think Dr. Oz is is a winning statewide candidate, and that's who Trump endorsed. So, I mean, if you just were looking at electability, McCormick could be your candidate, but th- th- this mega thing is a movement. It's more than electability. They're, they're- Wait, why is Dr. Oz not electable? Oh, I don't know. Quack medicine isn't in <laughs> during a pandemic usually, Tom, but that's me, you know. He's been on every, Oz has been on every side of every issue, whether it's guns or right. abortion or LGBTQ issues. The reason he might not be electable is not because he won't appeal to moderates. It's because he'll, the conservative base will stay home or they won't vote for governor and skip the Senate race. Yeah. So my, but my, my point is that this, you know, this MAGA, it's a movement and they're, they're trying to take over the Republican party. And so that electability argument, I think Trump, um, Donald Trump supporters are skeptical of that. Um, they heard that about Trump himself. I don't think it moves them necessarily. Uh, I don't disagree with you, Tom. I'm, you're handicapping the race. And you, you know more about it than I do. And, and Mitch McConnell may, you know, prefer David McCormick. And after all these horrible things they've been hearing about Dr. Oz from David McCormick's super PAC and vice versa, you know, she's surging at the right time, isn't she? Just one more thing on the general, because I think this is, could be very interesting because you have you know, if Fetterman wins the Democratic nomination, which it looks like he will, um, kind of a Trump-like populist persona versus an African-American woman who is a real MAGA. I mean, that's an interesting race. Fetterman's really interesting because he he does, he reads like a big guy wearing the goatee and bald, you yeah. know, he looks like a, like a WWE type or something. <laughs> Um, doesn't ever wear a suit or anything. And he is a populist, but he's, he's from like a Bernie bro, right? He's from the, he's populist from the left. Um, so it would make it a fascinating race. The other thing that's kind of fascinating about it is the one thing that he's piece of baggage that has been made of is, you know, he, I guess a few years ago, chased down this African-American guy who was jogging and held him, you know, I think he was, Held, I th- and I think he grabbed his shotgun, right? He was armed and because he had heard gunshots and he stopped this jogger and, and held him. And then it turned out the jogger was unarmed and it was fireworks and all that. So that's an interesting little twist, especially if he's running against an African-American woman who, you know, might might be inclined to play up that side of the story, which would make Democrats really uncomfortable. It's, it's just fascinating. It, it'll be a really interesting race if that's what it turns out to be in the general election. Well, Phil, um, meanwhile, uh, in Washington, the um, January 6th committee has subpoenaed five Republicans. There's Scott Perry of Alabama, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Jim Jordan of Ohio, Mo Brooks of Alabama, and possible Speaker of the House next time around, uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, What's going on there? And I guess there's a lot of questions on whether the subpoenas will even be able to stick, right? Because this is pretty unprecedented. Pretty unprecedented is not the right way to put that. It's unprecedented. (laughs) Pretty pregnant. I'll be honest with you. I think with what's going on in Ukraine, with the baby formula shortage, with inflation, a lot of attention in D.C. isn't 
backward looking. Certainly, Democrats would love to get as many bites of the apple as possible uh, on this and really bloody Republicans ahead of November. And and obviously, there's a good governance question of holding some of the folks who are involved uh, accountable. But I think that the over arching problem that congressional Democrats are running into, though, is the same one uh, that people ran into with the Mueller report. And that was that there was such a constant stream of leaks. There was uh, a, a sort of update, you know, every other month. And, and we were always told that there was smoke. And then eventually, when the Mueller report dropped, there was some fire there that was developing all of the smoke. But I, I feel like people just sort of, you know, looked the other way because they'd been promised this big reveal and they didn't get one. Uh, I think that perhaps something similar is happening with the January 6th commission. We've, we've got all of these leaks. We've got all of these developments. You can see the same sort of you know resistance figures really getting amped up. The question is going to be, in the end, do, do they have the goods? Uh, and can this sway the electorate? Well, right now, the electorate's uh, at least a portion of it is running around trying to figure out how to get baby formula. Um, everyone's running around trying to figure out how they can fill their gas tank up. I'm not sure if this is going to be an issue that moves the needle and, and maybe Democrats uh, to their own detriment, um, you know, went all in on this too quickly. Carl, you see it that way? I mean, televised hearings, that's something Washington loves. Yeah, I, I just, I, you know, this thing has been politicized from the beginning and A.B. Stoddard, has made the point on our show a couple months ago that McCarthy made an initial mistake by once he couldn't get some of the members that he wanted on the committee, including I think Jim Jordan. I think some of the ones who are going to be subpoenaed, he just took his marbles and went home. So he does, he's not in the room. He doesn't really know what's going on. Although it turns out, as Phil pointed out, if you want to know what's going on in that room, you just have to look at MSNBC. They'll tell you. The lead on their story was something like, you know, the committee has finally lost its patience. I mean, they're like the, it's like the official organ of the Democrats on the committee. Um, but I, Kevin McCarthy's response was a, a little more persuasive. He said, uh, I haven't seen the subpoena. He said, I guess they showed it to you guys before they showed it to me. And then he added, look, my view on this committee hasn't changed. Uh, it's illegit. It's a, it's not a legitimate investigation. It's a, they just want to go after their political point opponents. And that, uh, to me, seems not only fair comment, but that seems a pretty fair assessment of what's going on. And that's not helpful. I, I was thinking of this in another way, guys. I, when I got to Washington, I was a young reporter, I was Phil's age, and I was covering the California delegation. And it was the largest then, as now, the largest congressional delegation. They couldn't get anybody in leadership. You know, the, the old Southern Democrats were controlling thing, the Eastern liberals, nobody wanted Californians to run thing. Phil Burton, the great, late, great Phil Burton ran and lost by one vote, leadership vote against Jim Wright of Texas. Wright later became the speaker. And now you have the Californians, or the Speaker of the House and the minority leader, and these two people do not speak. They don't negotiate. They don't plan what's best for California. They're the head of warring camps. And now Pelosi is going to sign off on a subpoena of McCarthy. It, it's not only unseemly, it's almost a symbol for dysfunction, in my view. Tom, I know you're not a big fan of the hearings, but any chance these will get some political traction? Well, no, I just think it's a, it feels right. It's not going to move the needle at all. People don't care uh, about this. It has been politicized to the point where it's, you know, it's not going to move a single vote one way or the other. I mean, the interesting thing, though, is, is you know, we did have a poll, a Monmouth poll come out earlier today saying that abortion popped up to almost a tie with the economy for the number one issue on the minds of voters. 
Um, that's expected given the Roe v. Wade, you know, leaked draft and, and we'll eventually get the, the final opinion. But I think the Democrats have a much better chance of, of moving the needle, energizing their base, potentially moving, you know, votes, persuading people on that issue. They should spend more time on that issue than, than, uh, January 6th, January 6th, not going to, it's a, it's a, it's an empty well for them. They're not going to find any political juice down there. Hmm. Well, um, we've got this infant formula shortage, which I think is interesting because it sort of brings together so many of the sort of problems that the White House is facing right now. Because you've got people blame it on inflation. You have this story about the border babies getting formula while American babies, so-called, don't get it. It's uh, supply chain issues. Uh, it's overregulation. It's too much concentration of power and too few baby formula making uh, companies. I mean, Carl, is this a perfect storm? And is this the kind of thing that if you're in the White House, this is kind of your nightmare and that this is a story everybody can understand and it's just sort of crystallizes the problem? Yes, it's it's a nightmare for an administration. It, it reminds me of the things that happened you know, when Pete Wilson was governor of California or Jimmy Carter was president of the United States. And, you know, it's a plague. It's like, you know, you think, well, the next thing is locusts. Like what, what possibly could Joe Biden have done to cause this? Well, the answer is nothing, but people look to the white house. They look to the federal government for a sense of competence, an aura of competence that um, really I think is missing in this administration and was missing in the previous administration. There's not a sense anymore that, Washington can immediately help these problems. But I also want to say something about this Republican talking point um, that formula down at the border is somehow uh, reckless. That was Governor Greg Abbott's phrase down in Texas, or irresponsible or unfeeling or um, un-American. These infants brought across this border, they're not voters. They didn't do anything. They're little babies. Their parents brought them. They're in government custody. The United States certainly has an obligation to not let these babies die. And I, it's, it's, it's just unseemly for Republicans to seize on this. Uh, uh, worse than unseemly. I found it obscene, really. Um, what, what the answer is, we need to get baby formula to every single infant in North America who needs it. We need to do it now. And that is a winning argument for any politician, whatever party they're in. And to, to try and turn this against the Biden administration or immigrants, to me, that, that's not where it's at. And again, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but in a functioning democracy, we wouldn't even have discourse like this. We would Republicans and Democrats would roll up their sleeves and say, oh, what do we do? And Joe Biden would get, you know, Abbott, not related to Greg Abbott, Abbott, the baby formula maker on the phone and say, all right, and, and get his regulators in the room and say, OK, they had contamination in two plants maybe more. Two babies died that we know of. That's a problem. But what do we need to do to get these plants open tomorrow? That's what the kind of leadership you'd like to see. Instead, President Biden gives a speech talking about inflation, mentions this and attacks Republicans. Uh, meanwhile, Republicans are saying we should let babies starve at the border. It's just, it's it's kind of grotesque. It makes me think why governors often make better presidents or in these situations, because every governor has had a statewide emergency, a hurricane, a snowstorm, you name it. And they've had to deal with these kinds of things. Where if you're in the Senate, you never have to deal with anything. So, Phil, what's going on at the White House? Have they come up with a response? Do they have an answer for the American people on this? 
Not a satisfactory one. The Biden administration put out a fact sheet saying that they've been working on this for months, that they're going to cut red tape, that they're going to allow for the import of baby formula from overseas, and they're going to do everything they can to get this plant back online. The questions from reporters were, well, you said you're doing everything possible. What about the Defense Production Act for baby formula? Um, Because that's where we're at at this point. This plant has been offline since February. Uh, There was a whistleblower who said that they weren't uh, treating their equipment uh, effectively and that there was bacteria that was getting into the formula and that unfortunately was hurting kids. Um, The question is though, all right, well, we knew about this in February. The FDA is sort of the governing body here. They're dragging their feet to make certain that this uh, facility is as pristine as possible. You know, is is the administration really getting uh, things as moving as quickly as possible? And I thought a telling question yesterday was um, from Ed O'Keefe of CBS News. He asked Jen Psaki, all right, well, you say that the president's been involved in this. So when's the first conversation he had about it? And and she wouldn't detail that. And so he responded, well, did he, did, was he talking about this uh, privately with his advisors before last week? And she had to insist, yeah, of course, um, because you know maybe there's not a ton that this administration can do. Maybe the president from afar can't solve the baby formula crisis, um, but you know the White House doesn't want to piss off the mommy bloggers, and and there are a lot of people out there who have this is part of their life. This is not just you know. Uh, some far removed concern. You have people who have been on these blogs, who have been on these listservs, who have been talking to each other since February about how their kid can't get what they need. And so the White House turns around and shows them a fact sheet that says, oh, well, we're going to cut red tape and we're going to allow for the import of baby formula from overseas. And people who have been dealing with this for months, they're going to say, well, that's not good enough. You know, what are you actually doing to light a fire under these regulatory agencies and get this back up? Um, I think this is a a pretty potent issue. Joe Biden likes to say we're the United States of America. There's nothing we can't do. Well, for now, apparently the one thing we can't do is, you know, make enough baby formula. Tom, how do you see it? To, to follow on Phil's point, you know, Caitlin Huey Burns, who used to work at Real Clear Politics and is now at CBS News and is on maternity leave and, and just had a a baby tweeted the other day about because Nancy Pelosi came out and said, you know, the babies are hungry. We're going to, you know, we're going to address this immediately. And what do they do? They scheduled a hearing in two weeks. And she pointed that out sort of sarcastically. And, and that's the problem, right? The problem is government is always reactive. It, it, something has to become a crisis before anything gets done. And in a situation like this, it's just now rising to the level where, it's on the radar of the administration and they're seemingly a caught off guard and be immediately on the defensive. Why didn't you know about this? Why haven't you been doing anything about this? And so it's just a, you know, it's, it's a bad look, you know, Abbott came out and said, listen, if we started the, you know, if we get this plant started immediately, it'll still be two months before product is new product is on the shelves, two months. And that's assuming like they get things going like today um, so it's going to be a summer of of anxiety, frustration, anger for you know moms who have little kids who are depending on baby formula, and you know there's this everyone says well just breastfeed it's you know that's that's what they're for you know that's that's <laughs> that not, sounds like a man talking you don't have a woman on <laughs> I'm this quoting an article today this but not me I'm quoting an article and it was actually <laughs> written by uh, a 
female doctor who was saying that's that argument doesn't hold up because you have a lot of you know a lot of babies need formula supplements in addition to breastfeeding you have other women who are on on medication that makes breastfeeding not an option i mean there are a lot of reasons that women use baby formula um, and need it and so it is an urgent concern and it is a real problem for the white house because you don't want a bunch of angry moms out there. Not just moms, Tom. Not just moms. I we've got a one year old grandson in this very house, and and so now we have four angry adults, <laughs> three Democrats. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a real problem, um, and they've got to deal with it, you know, to the best of their ability. So we'll see how they do. To put even more of an exclamation point on this, um, you know, Abbott Pharmaceuticals, they're not just making baby formula at these plants. They're also making formula for people who have metabolic conditions who can't survive through normal nutrition. And, you know, I know families who, because they've stocked up um, months in advance, they've got what they need. But for some people, I mean, this can be months of not having what they, they need to survive. And, you know, the answer, which is, oh, well, the FDA is moving very quickly the FDA promises that this is going to be safe and they're going to sign off on that plant. That's that's not going to satisfy people who, you know, could be in pretty desperate straits. Well, Carl, I'll give you the last word, but I want to see if you can observe Canon's uh, first principle, I think it is, which is it can always get worse. I mean, this week that we had the baby formula problem for the White House and you had the Washington Post. We didn't talk about it today, but the Washington Post accused uh, Biden of magical thinking on inflation. Um, can it get worse? Well, yes. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter, poor Jimmy Carter, there was always some new crisis around the corner. Uh, look, we don't have hostages. We haven't committed uh, ground troops to Ukraine yet. I mean, look, this, the world seems like a fraught place now and it can get worse. But I, I guess what, what I'd like to see, and I, I, you don't want to sound too preachy, but it's a time for Democrats and Republicans to drop their swords a little bit on Capitol Hill, in my view, and and for and for and for President Biden to remember who he is. He ran on this. He, he this guy was who had negotiated Mitch McConnell personally. Obama's when he was Vice President, Obama sent him up there. Uh, now he disparages McConnell. Um, he gives this speech about inflation and it turns into rant against Republicans. He calls the you know he says gas prices have risen because of Vladimir Putin, but that started months before the invasion. It's really time for Washington to step up and uh, with these midterms going on and the voters kind of trying to tell us what they want, you'd think this would get their attention, but it hasn't got their attention. So yes, it can get worse. Tom's laughing. <laughs> you, better, you, better, you better bring him in, Andy. <laughs> oh, Carl, I love your, your naivete and your optimism. The, the Republicans <laughs> and Democrats are going to drop their swords Six months before a midterm election on Capitol Hill and get along and start passing legislation. I mean, you know, you've been around this game long enough to know that that's a little pie in the sky, right? Well, yes. I will answer for Carl. He always calls me Eeyore, so I'm just trying to, you know, infuse a little realism in the situation here. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Fair enough. But when have we had, when is this country, to, to Phil's point, when have we not had baby formula? Not in my lifetime. I mean, this is not a shortage anyone could have anticipated. So if they don't see that there's a crisis going on, if, and this is one crisis and there are others, you know, they're not paying attention. And, you know, these politicians, yeah, okay, they, it, to them, it's a binary world. Democrats suffer, then Republicans are rewarded. That's how they look at it. But the electorate's a little more sophisticated than that. And, you know, they, they, might, they might send a message that, that they want better. I'm going to let Carl have the last word 
uh, this time. So that's that. I want to thank Phil Wegman, Tom Bevan, and Carl Cannon. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As always, I encourage you to go to the Real Clear Politics website and read at least one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. And thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. Thank you.